1: My
2: history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts.
1: Welcome to episode number 198 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Previously on the show, we looked at the fighting for the Sunken Road at the Battle of Antietam on September 17, 1862, and as you all recall, by the end of the last episode, through a combination of Confederate mistakes and skillful Federal maneuvering, the entire center of Robert E. Lee's line had been shattered. A blue tide of Federals was rushing across the Sunken Road and into the Piper Cornfield beyond.
1: 2nd Corps Division Commander Israel B. Richardson, realizing the golden opportunity that lay before the Federals, drove troops forward relentlessly to exploit the breakthrough. Meanwhile, desperate Confederate officers worked to dam the break in the line and to reform broken units to meet Richardson's continuing assault. To blunt the Union advance and gain, gain precious time, The rebels sent in counterattacks that were little more than forlorn hopes.
0: On the Piper farm beyond the sunken road, D.H. Hill and his officers rallied a mixed lot of troops and sent them forward to counterattack the Yankees. A soldier in the 9th Alabama later remembered how, quote, At this point, D.H. Hill was with us in person, walking up and down our lines and speaking words of encouragement. General Hill, in a clear, loud voice, gave the order, Attention! Charge!
1: The men of the 5th New Hampshire crouched among the broken and bloodied enemy bodies in the sunken road to meet the counterattack. The Confederates came at them through the Piper cornfield, screeching the rebel yell. That unique battle cry was sometimes known to unnerve even veteran federal troops, but the 5th New Hampshire's colonel, Edward Cross, had a novel way of counteracting it. Cross shouted to his men, Put on the war paint, and they tore open cartridges and smeared their faces with black gunpowder. Then Cross yelled, Give him the war whoop, and the soldiers from the Granite State answered with a high-pitched Indian war cry that rang out in competition with the rebel yell. A federal lieutenant admitted he wasn't sure how this affected the enemy, but he thought that at least, quote, It let him know we were, Unterrified.
0: The Confederate counterattack was pressed forward so hard that same Federal lieutenant wrote that a rebel color bearer reached a spot within 15 yards of the road. In virtual unison, a dozen Yankees shouted, shoot the man with the flag, and in the answering volley of shots, quote, he went down in a twinkling and the flag was not raised in sight again.
1: The 81st Pennsylvania came up in support, and finally the Confederate counterattack was repulsed. Soon afterward, D.H. Hill picked up a musket and personally led 200 men in another charge, acting more like a sergeant rather than a major general. Hill would later write, quote, We met, however, with a warm reception, and the little command was broken and dispersed.
0: But each of these doomed counterattacks kept the Federals off balance and bought precious time for more Confederate cannon to come up and take up position behind the shattered Rebel line. Captain M.B. Miller of the Washington Artillery of New Orleans posted his battery in the Piper Orchard and blasted the advancing Yankees with canister. As the range shortened, Miller went to double charges of canister, and the guns bounded a foot in the air with each discharge.
1: But as the Federals drew ever closer, the Confederate artillerymen also began to fall. And as James Murphy relates the story in his book about Antietam, The Gleam of Bayonets, quote, Soon the crews began to dwindle away to nothing. Longstreet was off his horse, and with orders shouted above the whir of the cannon, had his own staff manning gunner's stations. It was an impressive sight, and lived in the memory of the men for years. Longstreet, still with his bandaged heel in the slipper, holding the reins of his officers' horses, while calmly passing on advice on the range of the enemy."
0: After casualties and straggling, hardly 2,000 rebel infantrymen remained to hold the center of the Confederate line, and they were almost entirely without organization, just fragments of units here and there, still facing the Federals. Longstreet later admitted, quote, We were already badly whipped, and were only holding our ground by sheer force of desperation.
1: But now, supporting that precariously thin line of rebel infantrymen was a gun line of 20 cannon. The Federal artillery across the Antietam took aim at this Confederate gun line, but couldn't silence it. The big Union guns scored some hits, though. As a South Carolina battery swung into position, a shell struck one of its caissons, and it disappeared in a tremendous explosion, heard from one end of the battlefield to the other. But the battery still got into action almost immediately thereafter, and it fired 70 rounds of canister to help stop the Federal advance.
0: In the face of such murderous artillery fire and despite Israel Richardson's best efforts, the Union breakthrough at the sunken road was contained as the forward surge of blue gradually lost its momentum and finally ground to a halt. The Federal units were about fought out and almost out of ammunition, so Richardson pulled them back to the road and then back to the cover of the ridgeline where they had sheltered earlier.
1: But Richardson did so with no thought that the troops here were done fighting As soon as the men had caught their breath and reorganized and filled their cartridge boxes, and as soon as headquarters sent him fresh reinforcements and forwarded some rifled guns to suppress the rebel artillery, then Israel Richardson fully intended to resume the offensive here and complete the breakthrough that had shattered the Confederate center.
0: At the same time, on the Confederate right flank, the Federal Ninth Corps also gained the upper hand. Isaac Rodman's flanking force was only now reaching Snavely's Ford, but while Ninth Corps Commander Jacob Cox continued to wait for some sign of progress from that column, he organized a third assault on the lower bridge.
1: Two more regiments from Samuel Sturgis's division, the 51st Pennsylvania and the 51st New York, were chosen for this attempt. The units belonged to Colonel Edward Ferraro's brigade. Ferraro was a New Yorker who had finessed his way to brigade command by making use of his connections at Tammany Hall, a powerful New York City political ring. Now, as Ferraro got the regiments ready to move out, he gave a little speech. He said, It is General Burnside's special request that the 251st take that bridge. Will you do it? The question caught the men by surprise. Few of them had much respect for Ferraro. The Pennsylvanians were particularly irked at the colonel because, as a disciplinary action, he had recently denied them the privilege of receiving their daily shot of whiskey. So now a few moments of silence passed, and then Corporal Lewis Patterson piped up and asked, Will you give us our whiskey, colonel, if we take it? Yes, by God, promised Ferraro, you shall have as much as you want.
0: Cox returned to the original idea of sending a storming party straight down the hillside facing the bridge, only this time he provided considerably more fire support from nearby artillery and infantry. As the fighting at the sunken road reached its climax, the twin 51st set off toward the lower bridge at a run.
1: They were hardly halfway down the slope when Hard Rock Benning's Georgians met them with a blast of musketry, and the Federal Regimental Commanders saw the assault force would never make it across the bridge in this one rush. In the meadow at the foot of the hill, they turned off to the right and left, with the Pennsylvanians taking cover behind a stone wall along the creek bank and the New Yorkers finding somewhat less effective shelter along a split-rail fence bordering the road downstream. A lieutenant in the 51st New York, George Whitman, who happened to be the poet Walt Whitman's brother, said, quote, We were then ordered to halt and commence firing, and the way we showered the lead across that creek was nobody's business, end quote. Under the increasing fire from across the Antietam, the Georgians defending the lower bridge began to waver. They had been holding this spot against all comers for three hours, but now the strain was beginning to tell, and their cartridge boxes were almost empty. The colonel of the 51st Pennsylvania ordered a charge, and as the color bearers led the way, carrying the regiment's flags onto the bridge, the New Yorkers joined the rush forward, and together the twin 51st stormed across the lower bridge.
0: As the Pennsylvanians and New Yorkers reached the far side of the creek, the rebel defenders fled. There's some debate about whether this Confederate withdrawal was prearranged or not, but the end result was that the Georgians retreated and the bridge at last belonged to the Federals. It would now have a new name, Burnside Bridge. A thunderous cheer rose up from the Federals on the nearby hills who had watched the charge of the 251st, It was about 1 p.m., and the Ninth Corps had finally captured the lower bridge.
1: It was also about 1 o'clock, when, up behind the sunken road, the indomitable Israel Richardson went down with a mortal wound from a Confederate artillery shell. And at the same time, George McClellan was faced with a critical decision. From his vantage point at the Pry House, Little Mac had witnessed the bitter struggle for the sunken road from start to finish, and had seen the Federal troops finally, triumphantly, break the Rebel line. Before he was hit, Richardson had called for artillery batteries and fresh infantry to support a further advance, and there were ample numbers of both guns and men at hand.
0: A few hundred yards north of the sunken road was a line of seven Union batteries, several equipped with the rifled pieces best suited to suppress the Confederate cannon.
1: And then the divisions of Baldy Smith and Henry Slocum, from Franklin's Sixth Corps, had arrived from Pleasant Valley and were on the field, and Fitzjohn Porter's Fifth Corps hadn't been engaged in the morning's fighting.
0: Longstreet later wrote that at that critical moment in the battle, quote, ten thousand fresh troops could have come in and taken Lee's army and everything it had.
1: Longstreet was right. At that moment, the Confederates were teetering on the verge of disaster. Ten thousand fresh Federals entering the fray certainly, absolutely would have spelled the doom of Robert E. Lee's army, and McClellan didn't just have ten thousand fresh troops on hand, he had over twenty thousand.
0: George McClellan was faced with a critical choice, and he revealed his decision when he personally gave instructions to Winfield Scott Hancock, the officer he was sending across the Antietam to replace the fallen Israel Richardson. After receiving Little Mac's orders, Hancock galloped onto the battlefield at the head of his staff and rode the length of the federal line facing the sunken road. As he passed along the line, he called out, Now men, stay there until you are ordered away. This place must be held at all hazards.
1: Hancock's words are telling. Whereas Israel Richardson had realized that a golden opportunity lay before the Federals once the Confederate line along the sunken road had collapsed, and Richardson had thought only of how to aggressively continue the drive forward to seal the victory, George McClellan, on the other hand, was still thinking not of what he could do to Robert E. Lee, but about what Lee might do to him.
0: Little Mac's thoughts at this critical moment may be judged from the message he drafted for General-in-Chief Henry Halleck in Washington and sent off at 1.25 that afternoon. McClellan told Halleck, We are in the midst of the most terrible battle of the war, perhaps of history, Thus far it looks well, but I have great odds against me. I have thrown the mass of the army on their left flank. Burnside is now attacking their right, and I hold my small reserve consisted of Porter, 5th Corps, ready to attack the center as soon as the flank movements are developed. It will either be a great defeat or a most glorious victory. I think and hope that God will give us the latter."
1: Before he sent the message to Halleck, McClellan crossed out the final two sentences and substituted the wish, quote, that God will give us a glorious victory, end quote. However, his original words are revealing, since it was obviously the fear of a great defeat that weighed upon Little Mac's mind. Incredibly, he still persisted in his mistaken belief that he was facing a vast rebel host, I have great odds against me, he told Halleck. And although he claimed he was ready to send Fitzjohn Porter across the Antietam as soon as the flank movements are developed, one wonders just what Little Mac, at one o'clock that afternoon, was still waiting for on the flanks. In reality, following the rout of Sedgwick's division in the West Woods, McClellan's every action that day would be directed not at securing a victory, but at hedging against suffering a defeat. After the federal breakthrough at the sunken road, and with the enemy teetering on the verge of disaster, McClellan did nothing to press that advantage. Nor would Little Mac support Ninth Corps' success in finally seizing the lower bridge. Historian Francis Palfrey, who fought at Antietam with the 20th Massachusetts, famously later said that the situation at midday on September 17th was a, quote, remarkable case of a battle won without the victors knowing it.
2: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
0: From the Federal left, Ambrose Burnside sent a message reporting that 9th Corps was across the Antietam and he was confident he could hold his bridgehead on the west side of the creek. McClellan reacted angrily to Burnside's report. According to Little Mac's original battle plan, the 9th Corps' role seemed to be to cross the lower bridge as a feint or diversion while Hooker launched his attack on the northern end of the battlefield. But now, since things had gone badly to the north, McClellan was afraid that if Ninth Corps didn't move forward aggressively and keep the Confederates to the south occupied, then Robert E. Lee would have a free hand to unleash uncommitted thousands of rebel soldiers and lash out at the vulnerable federal right flank on the northern end of the battlefield.
1: Of course, those thousands of uncommitted rebel soldiers existed nowhere except in McClellan's mind, but Little Mac had every expectation his wily opponent would launch a powerful counterstroke at any moment. And so to counter that non-existent threat, McClellan had sent Franklin's two sixth corps divisions across the Antietam to the East Woods after they arrived on the scene from Pleasant Valley.
0: McClellan was so anxious that the Ninth Corps, down on the other end of the battlefield, drive on Sharpsburg to keep Robert E. Lee occupied, that he sent Colonel Thomas Key of his staff to Burnside with positive orders to continue Ninth Corps' forward movement. It's worth noting that although McClellan expected Burnside to continue his advance toward Sharpsburg, Little Mac now said nothing of his earlier promise to support Burnside by sending forces from Porter's Fifth Corps across the Middle Bridge.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Well, at any rate, as we mentioned previously, McClellan and Burnside had been quite close, going back to the days before the war. But in the past two days, their friendship had soured. Burnside felt McClellan had slighted him when the army commander was doling out praise for the victory at South Mountain, and then when Little Mac did away with the wing system, under which Hooker's 1st Corps and Cox's Ninth Corps had been under Burnside's command, Burnside took the loss of Hooker's Corps as a personal affront. So, with all of that swirling around in the background, and as evidence of how far the relationship between McClellan and Burnside had deteriorated, and as a sign of how anxious Little Mac was about matters down on the Army's left flank, he now told Colonel Key that if Key wasn't satisfied that his, that is McClellan's, instructions would be carried out, then he was authorized to deliver an order then and there relieving Burnside of command.
0: Not knowing he just might get the axe at any moment, Burnside, when he received mcclellan's instructions, promised to go forward at the earliest possible moment, and so unknowingly avoided being relieved from command. But Burnside discovered that suiting actions to his words proved difficult, since a new set of problems was discovered. Sturgis's division, which had put forth the most effort storming the lower bridge, had started to cross the creek, but they were out of ammunition. It would take time to bring up more ammunition, and in the meantime, Wilcox's division was ordered to cross the creek and join Sturgis's men, but by that point a confused, jumbled bottleneck had developed at the bridge, and so crossing Wilcox's troops took yet more precious time.
1: Then Rodman's flanking column had to be brought into position after its long detour to find Snavely's ford, and all in all, two hours passed after the bridge was captured before everything was ready on Burnside's front. It wasn't until three o'clock that Ninth Corps was ordered forward toward Sharpsburg.
0: Meanwhile, to the north in those two hours, after McClellan failed to follow up the breakthrough at the sunken road, what had been a savage, continual thunder on that part of the field had died down to a scattering of musketry and random shelling. In an area perhaps a mile square, bounded by the East Woods and the West Woods to each side, and the Miller cornfield to the north, and the sunken road to the south, some eighteen thousand five hundred Confederates and Federals were dead, wounded, or missing. Hmm.
1: Close to one out of every three men who fought on that part of the battlefield became a casualty. A number of Antietam veterans would later recall thinking that the bloody combat would end only with mutual extermination those who had survived prayed it would soon be over a yankee who fought in the east woods admitted hoping quote, "we might not be called upon again and lo the luck of the 10th maine was with us and we were undisturbed" end quote. a north carolinian left manning the thin line holding the confederate center said quote, "the sun seemed almost to go backwards" and it appeared as if night would never come.
0: William Franklin, who had performed so cautiously at Crampton's Gap three days before, was now the only top-ranking Federal who wanted to attack. In fact, shortly after the sixth Corps divisions of Smith and Slocum reached the battlefield, Franklin and his two lieutenants worked out a plan to attack the Confederate left in the West Woods. When they took the plan to Bull Sumner, who as senior officer was in command on this part of the field, he vetoed it as too dangerous. By all accounts, Sumner had been rattled and demoralized by his experience leading Sedgwick's division to disaster in the West Woods, and now he pointed out that if Franklin should be repulsed, then there wouldn't be any other organized major federal units left to meet a rebel counterattack.
1: Although Franklin couldn't budge Sumner out of his funk, The Sixth Corps commander was still convinced a federal attack on this part of the field would succeed, so he sent an aide to the Pry House to make his case directly to McClellan. Franklin's proposal was the sole note of optimism that Little Mac had received from that quarter since early morning, and apparently it motivated him to actually leave leave Army headquarters and ride to the front. And so at 2 p.m., McClellan left the Pry House for the first time that day and crossed the Antietam to discuss the situation on the northern part of the battlefield with his generals.
0: Once he arrived at Sumner's headquarters, McClellan listened to that general's views on the state of affairs, as well as to Franklin's but it isn't clear if he also sought information on the actual condition of the 1st and 12th Corps from George Meade, who had taken over from Hooker, and Alpheus Williams, who had taken over from Mansfield. In any case, this was obviously McClellan's moment to seize control of the battle, but it was Sumner's pessimistic view that prevailed. McClellan later said that, quote, General Sumner expressed the most decided opinion against another attempt that day.
1: According to Stephen Sears, Franklin had at least 10,500 6th Corps troops immediately available to make an attack, and had McClellan inquired of Meade and Williams, he would have found there were perhaps 10,000 men from the 1st and 12th Corps who could have at least backed them up. George McClellan had previously displayed little trust in Bull Sumner's judgment. In fact, he had said he considered Sumner unfit for high command. But now, since Sumner's cautiousness dovetailed neatly with Little Mac's own views, he sided with Sumner and not Franklin.
0: We'll just point out that McClellan had just been quite willing to replace another general, Ambrose Burnside, for lack of aggressiveness. But here in this instance, Little Mac couldn't bring himself to overrule a demoralized Sumner or put another general like Franklin in his place. As Franklin later recalled him saying, McClellan concluded that, quote, it would be unsafe to risk anything on the right.
1: The lull in the fighting was broken at three o'clock, when at the southern end of the battlefield, the Ninth Corps at last lurched into motion and moved forward toward Sharpsburg, There were some 8,500 men in the three attacking divisions, with Sturgis's division in reserve. The defending Confederate force on this front, commanded by D.R. Jones, had been weakened, and then weakened some more, as Robert E. Lee siphoned off units to send his urgently needed reinforcements to the left and center of his line, and now Jones only had about 2,800 troops left here to meet the Ninth Corps' advance.
0: D.R. Jones, known as Rump to his friends, was defending not only Sharpsburg, but he was protecting the Confederate Army's only possible line of retreat back to the Potomac River and the ford at Shepherdstown. Amazingly, despite McClellan's lack of generalship and the fumbling by Burnside and Cox, the battle could still be won if the Ninth Corps could brush aside the skeleton force of Confederate defenders and cut off the Rebel Army's line of retreat.
1: But due to McClellan's delay in issuing orders to the 9th Corps, and then the trouble Burnside's men had in seizing the lower bridge, and then the delay in getting themselves sorted out once they were actually across the Antietam, the 9th Corps was beginning this attack four or five hours late. But even so, four hours of daylight still remained. Plenty of time for 9th Corps to crush the southern end of the Confederate line, capture Sharpsburg, And cut Lee's army off from the Potomac.
0: The plan worked out by Burnside and Cox was to attack in two parallel thrust on a broad front three-quarters of a mile across. On the right, Wilcox's division, backed up by a brigade of the Kanawha division, would advance directly toward Sharpsburg following the road that led up to the town from the lower bridge.
1: Then on the left, Rodman's division, supported by the other Kanawha brigade, would follow a course that took it south of the town, then it would swing to the right to turn the rebel's flank and cut the road to the ford.
0: The terrain in front of Wilcox was hilly and rough, marked by an alternating pattern of meadows, orchards, and stubbled fields. With the Confederate defenders making a stand at every fence line and farm building, the Federal advance here was slow and difficult. Rather than one battle, it was a series of small, bitter struggles for possession of a stone wall and an apple orchard, or for a farmer's house and a barn.
1: The Confederates had batteries posted back on high ground in front of the town, and once again, well-handled rebel artillery took a heavy toll on advancing Yankee infantry. A young private in the 17th Michigan wrote his father that, quote, It was rather strange music to hear the balls scream within an inch of my head. I had a bullet strike me on the top of my head, just as I was going to fire, and a piece of shell struck my foot. A ball hit my finger, and another hit my thumb. I concluded they meant me.
0: That fellow decided that war wasn't quite what he had expected. He told his father how, quote, I have seen pictures of battles, they would all be in line, all standing in a nice level field, fighting, and etc., etc., but it isn't so.
1: When Wilcox first advanced, he had help on his right from two regiments of regulars from the Fifth Corps that had crossed the middle bridge about noon in support of several artillery batteries that had been moved to the west side of the creek. This appeared to be the aid McClellan had promised Burnside when he first ordered the Ninth Corps into action. Alfred Pleasanton also crossed the Middle Bridge with some of his Union cavalry, and he detected what he termed, quote, the embarrassing condition of the enemy, end quote. And so he sent back a request for more of Fitz John Porter's 5th Corps troops to cross the Antietam at the Middle Bridge to exploit the opportunity.
0: But instead, the regulars were recalled to their proper station guarding the artillery batteries at the Middle Bridge and told to stay there. Word came from headquarters that McClellan, quote, has no infantry to spare, end quote. In his official report, Pleasanton bluntly stated that, quote, decisive victory, which was then within grasp, was lost to us by this inaction and apathy.
1: Not surprisingly, McClellan deleted that comment before he submitted Pleasanton's report to the War Department. But, like every other federal command that made a major attack that day, Like Hooker's First Corps, Mansfield's Twelfth Corps, the three divisions of the Second Corps under Sedgwick, French, and Richardson, now the Ninth Corps would also fight unsupported because McClellan was incapable of coordinating the actions of his army, and he was unwilling to believe he held any advantage over Robert E. Lee's Confederates.
0: As Wilcox's Federals fought their way toward Sharpsburg, Rodman's two brigades on their left, under Colonels Harrison Fairchild and Edward Harland, were confronting an equally daunting situation. The ground here was open and rolling, rising gently but steadily to a low ridge extending southward from the town, upon which ran the Harpers Ferry Road. At the crest of this ridge line, D.R. Jones had posted a dozen cannon, which had a clear field of fire over the fields in front of them.
1: A New York soldier said, quote, The practice of the rebel artillerymen was something wonderful in its accuracy. They dropped shot and shell right into our line repeatedly. They kept the air fairly filled with missiles. End quote and so it fell to Harrison Fairchild's brigade of New Yorkers to make a charge against this rebel gun line a half mile away. On the command, they jumped up and advanced at the double quick through a fire so heavy that observers noticed the men were unconsciously ducking their heads as if they were going out into a hailstorm. Shells and blasts of canister knocked down the New Yorkers at seemingly every step. The explosion of a single shell was seen to have killed eight men. There was a piece of low ground in the med- meadow halfway to the ridge line, and the Federal officers halted the advance in that sheltered spot to align ranks for the final rush. So intense was the excitement and strain of the moment that Private David Thompson was reminded of Goethe's description of battle in the Napoleonic Wars when, quote, The whole landscape for an instant turned slightly red.
0: And then the New Yorkers were up and charging forward again. One of the Confederate gunners said the Yankees came on, quote, like a plague of Pharaoh's locust, end quote. As the Federals drew closer, the rebel cannon limbered up and withdrew to safety. Even while the guns pulled out, though, the infantry brigades of James Kemper and Thomas Drayton prepared to meet the onrushing enemy.
1: Kemper's Virginians and Drayton's Georgians and South Carolinians lined up behind a post-and-rail fence and a stone wall. They had the advantage of cover, while the Yankees had the advantage of numbers, about 700 to 590. The ground just in front of the rebel position sloped upward more steeply, and for a few moments the nature of the terrain made it so the two sides lost sight of each other. As the Confederate defenders waited, resting their muskets on the fence rails and the wall, they could hear the shouted commands of the Union officers. Private Alexander Hunter of the 17th Virginia vividly remembered how, quote, The first thing we saw appear was the gilt eagle that surmounted the pole, then the top of the flag, next the flutter of the stars and stripes itself, slowly mounting, up it rose, then their hats came in sight, still rising the faces faces emerge, next a range of curious eyes appeared. Then such a hurrah as only the Yankee troops could give broke the stillness, and they surged against us.
0: The two lines were just fifty yards apart when the Confederates opened fire. That was point-blank range and was a rarity on most Civil War battlefields, but grimly commonplace at Antietam, and as had happened elsewhere on the battlefield, men here fell by the dozens. The Yankees halted and returned fire, and after exchanging several murderous volleys with the rebels, the New Yorkers surged forward in a final lunge to close with the enemy.
1: Yankees and rebels tumbled together in a brief flurry of stabbing bayonets and clubbed muskets, and then the Confederates broke and ran for the rear. One of Kemper's Virginians wrote that the Federal soldiers then began to give regular, methodical cheers, as if they had gained a game of baseball.
0: The loss of this position put the entire Confederate right flank in immediate danger of collapse retreating rebel infantry and batteries crowded into Sharpsburg streets pursued by Union shell fire that smashed through houses and splintered storefronts. The federal infantry advanced closer and their skirmishers dodged around the buildings on the town's outskirts.
1: At this moment of crisis, Robert E. Lee was on the scene, ordering up every available artillery piece to put into line to stop the Yankee advance, and for a time Lee moved among the broken ranks, to help the Confederate company officers rally their men. He then rode to a commanding knoll outside of town for a better view of the situation. By his skillful shuffling of troops and guns to threaten spots, Lee had managed to stay one step ahead of defeat all day long, but at this moment he was staring catastrophe squarely in the face. Then, about 3.30, off to the south, Lee saw a marching column of troops approaching the battlefield. Who was it? If it was more Federals, all hope was indeed lost, for the Confederate Army's line of retreat would be cut off. Lee asked a nearby artillery officer for the use of his telescope. Both of Lee's hands were still bandaged, so he couldn't use the glass himself, but he told the officer to focus on the distant column. "'What troops are those?' he asked. "'After a moment came the answer, "'They are flying the Virginia and Confederate flags.' "'As if he had expected no other answer, "'Lee remarked calmly, "'It is A.P. Hill from Harper's Ferry.' "'And so, just over two days after deciding to make a stand at Sharpsburg, "'Robert E. Lee's army was finally reunited. "'After a brutal forced march from Harper's Ferry,' A.P. Hill was coming onto the battlefield at precisely the right place and at the last possible moment to save the day for the Army of Northern Virginia.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Crossroads of Freedom, Antietam by James McPherson.
1: Crossroads of Freedom is just what you'd expect from James McPherson. It's an elegantly written account that displays the author's command of the war's military and political history. In this book about the battle, McPherson shows why he thinks that although Antietam itself wasn't a decisive battlefield victory for the Union, it was nevertheless a critical turning point in the Civil War due to its important political, diplomatic, and moral consequences.
0: So that's Crossroads of Freedom, Antietam, by James McPherson. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to our website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: Yep, Uh, and you can also head over to the website and find over 50 additional episodes of the podcast, which you can listen to if you're a member of the Strawfoot Brigade.
0: Just this past weekend, we released the 54th Members episode about the escape of the Union Cavalry from Harper's Ferry, when Stonewall Jackson was closing the trap on that place just before the Battle of Antietam.
1: Yeah, and so if you're a member of the Strawfoot Brigade, you will have access to that episode. And when you join the Strawfoot Brigade, it costs you just $5 a month, and you'll not only be supporting the podcast and what Tracy and I are doing here, but you'll have access to all the members' episodes, like that one about the escape of the Union cavalry from Harper's Ferry. And we'll probably have one more Antietam-related show, uh, since we plan on using a members' episode to talk about the clash at the Ford at Shepherdstown on September 19th, after the Confederates had retreated back into Virginia. Oh, and we do want to thank the newest member of the Strawfoot Brigade, Elizabeth.
0: We also want to give a shout out to Joe from Arizona.
1: Hi, Joe. And then we also wanted to thank Miriam at the Inn at Antietam for her invitation to stay there the next time we visit the battlefield. Um, Miriam and her husband own the inn, and she's a fan of the podcast. So we look forward to staying there sometime and meeting her.
0: And then as we wrap up this show, we'll remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music.
1: Yes, and we still think it's the perfect music for the podcast, so we're glad to use it with their permission. And besides Midnight on the Water, Spiritwood Music has lots of other great, similar instrumental songs that you can get at their website or on iTunes or Amazon or Google Play. And if you would get some of their music, we'd appreciate it, since it would be a nice thank you to them for letting us use their song on the podcast for over four years now.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next week when we wrap up the Antietam story arc. But until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: Bye.